So 2122 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Meg Rowley of Fangraphs, and I am joined by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Ben, how are you? Well, I've been busy perusing the playoff odds published mm. at Fangraphs.com, just as you mm. promised on our previous episode. Mm. You delivered. Yep. They are, in fact, publicly available. And I've been yep. looking at them. Yep. Anything surprise you when you saw them, presumably before they went to press? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, just how normal everything is and how <laughs> yeah. little tension it would inspire. Mm-hmm. I guess the good news, Ben, the good news for me, Meg, as the person who, you know, I, I promised that they would come, but actually had very little to do with their uh, creation, <laughs> as it turns out, was that things were like pretty well in line with what I was expecting and that the differences mm-hmm. tended to be matters of like degree rather than category. Yeah. I knew, for instance, that we would have a very high opinion of the Braves. Boy, mm-hmm. do we like the Braves, Ben, you know? Yes. But, like, that makes sense because uh, they're a pretty good baseball team. I will say, like, I I saw the Orioles projection and I was like, <sighs> <laughs> and, um, you know, my, my uh, anticipated consternation proved to be kind of prescient. Yeah, you saw your shadow and you knew you were in for several more (laughs) months of consternation about Orioles projections. I get it. I mean, look, I think the Orioles are probably better than the projections say, too. But I understand why projections say what they say. And so, look, here's the thing, Ben. The reaction to these projections, here's what I've realized. And I want to be clear that I don't I'm not saying this to try to denigrate anyone's reaction to them. And I also want to be clear that I don't think that we are like infallible when it comes to these things. You know, we want to be engaged with the model, I think, pretty actively and make sure that we're thinking about all of this stuff the right way. But I think that a lot of the reaction to projections from fans It's not about numbers, man. It's about feelings, you know? (laughs) And I hold feelings in in very high esteem. So this is, again, this is not a knock. But there's like a reticence to engage with what projections are trying to accomplish. So there's that piece of it. I think that there's some genuine confusion about like what quote-unquote matters and what doesn't when it comes to the playoff odds. And so like I, I observed a number of Orioles fans truly trying to engage with this in good faith and figure out, like, why, you know, why? Why is a team that last year won 101 games projected to be second in the AL East um, behind the Yankees, who were, Mm -hmm. you know, pretty bad last year, famously, at least by their usual standards? Yes. I would say a number of things, which is that, like, them winning 101 games last year just fundamentally doesn't matter very much in terms of what they're going to accomplish this year to say that it doesn't matter at all is sort of silly because like a lot of the team is the same so like sure you know you have a team and mm-hmm. it still has really good players right and people are probably looking at it thinking these are young players these are players who just broke in they're probably right. going to be improving if anything right and uh, that point in particular i think bears some scrutiny because i think that there's a sense with baltimore in particular because of the presence of guys like 
Adley to some extent, but probably Gunner to a much greater degree that like we are underrating the potential contributions of, of very young players to a team like the Orioles. And to that, I say like, you know, we project Gunner Henderson to be like a five win player this season. Mm-hmm. You know, we we are we are in on Gunner. Yeah. You know, this is not like we're, we don't have a Gunner take. Um, mm-hmm. I think that one place where you could potentially um, note the just inherent conservatism of projections as it pertains to young players would be with someone like Jackson Holiday, right? Where 2.7 wins and a 107 WRC plus. And I would just like remind everyone, like, this is a this is a 20-year-old. This is a young man who has still a relatively short minor league track record, albeit a very good one. He he hasn't debuted yet. And he's played 18 games at, at AAA, you know? And so do I expect that Jackson Holiday is going to be a very, very good baseball player? I do. We have a we have at least by our last cycle had a, a 60 on him. And I imagine, I don't want to spoil prospect week, but imagine he'll rate well on the hundred that goes next week. But, um, mm-hmm. you know, like maybe there you say, oh, they're, they're being a little conservative when it comes to holiday. But I also think that this is a team that probably still could use another starter, will probably have a worse bullpen than it did last year. We are projecting some amount of regression from some of their guys, including Bradish. And it's a good team. It's a good team that last year enjoyed incredible sequencing uh, on on the offensive side of the ball, had a really great bullpen performance, things that are not typically um, repeatable year to year, plays in a hard division, probably has a little bit worse bullpen, has a good top of the rotation starter, but you know has guys behind him who are not like knock down, drag out guys. I get why the projections end up where they are. To be clear, we're pro- we're projecting the Yankees to win that division and mm-hmm. for 88 wins. You know, that's sort of what their their um, medium projection is like. So a, a lot of this just comes down to the fact that they play in a, you know, a knockdown drag out kind of division. Yeah, at least it's, it's a meat grinder again. I mean, all of these teams, even the Red Sox are right around 500, their projections. Right. So yeah. it's just, as always, it's going to be really tough and that's going to depress your win total somewhat. And it's yep. not just Fangrass. The Pakoda standings came out at Baseball Prospectus this yeah. week. They had the Orioles in third, the Yankees yep. at first. So They really I love per- the Yankees. They have them perfect yeah. down for like 95 wins over I, BP. Personally, my inclination is that I would take the over on these Orioles numbers, but I also don't particularly trust my personal inclination over the projections. I think in the long term, probably the projections would project better than I do. So take that for what it's worth, which is quite possibly nothing. But I do think that maybe some guys will get better or they'll add as the season goes on, as the deadline approaches. You can't really project that, or at least it isn't currently projected. Although if and when Baltimore adds additional guys, whether they were to sign someone before opening day or trade for players at the deadline, you know, once that happens, the odds will take that addition into account, right? Yes, the projections change their opinions as the players change and as their performance yeah. changes. But but also the Orioles, I wrote about it, I talked about it on the podcast. They've had a historic run the last couple of years with right. improving by leaps and bounds each year. And a projection system is always going to project a player or a team to come back to the pack a little bit, fall down mm-hmm. to earth after making major strides like that. Now that's what 
we might have said and the projections said last spring too and the Orioles sure. said no well no way we're, we're we're not taking a step back we're taking another step forward and then sure. they did so maybe they will again but sure. obviously they had some things go well for them and yeah. whether it was a timing and sequencing and outplaying run differential or just oh, health yeah. which maybe you'd expect yeah. with a young team but yeah I I think they will probably be better than this but I don't think that I would say they're a slam dunk division favorites or anything I think that if anything, it might be sort of surprising to see the Yankees projected sure. as rosily as the systems have, just because people remember last year and yep. the projections, I think, also had them as the top team last year. And that did not turn out to be accurate. Right. Not that they were terrible, but they were not in contention till the end of the season. Then again, you look back at 2022 and I believe the Yankees exceeded their expectations right. and projections that year. So there's a sense that like, yeah, you might project them to be good, but they're old and they're injury prone. And yeah, that is true. And there's probably something to that. But mm -hmm. then again, it was just a couple of years ago that they managed to do even better than the projections thought. And they've been busy. They've made some moves this winter. I kind of felt like they might have one more major move in them. And for all we know, they still might. Right. But they've done enough that I, I guess I get it. That was one thing that initially made me go, huh. Not that yeah. it's like so wildly out of line with my expectations that I think it's uh, calls into question the basis of the system or something. But that was just one of the things that raised my eyebrow a little sure. bit, which something should raise your eyebrow because if it doesn't, then what's the point of these predictions? <laughs> if they just match exactly what we think. Now, we've, we've talked before, I think, about how the projections and predictions that you get at this time of year, they don't really surprise you as much as they used to because we're kind of in a year-round projections environment. Right. We don't have year-round playoff odds, but we don't have far from that. And we do have some form of projections that you can look up at Fangrass, projected war totals, whatever it is, year-round. So it's not like it used to be where a season would end and then basically stuff would go dark for months. And then suddenly the preview magazines would show up on right. the newsstands and and the checkout aisles, and then you would read them and you'd go, huh, oh, wow, that was better than I thought. Like, we're kind of constantly recalibrating our expectations, or at least people like us probably who are actually looking at these playoff right. ads and projections and putting some stock in them. You're not going to shock me when these are rolled out because I kind of have a sense of what the ballpark estimate is anyway. And I want to like I want to be clear because I feel like I, you know, I said, oh, I'm not being snarky. And then I sounded pretty snarky, Ben. Um, <laughs> <laughs> just do a little self-assessment. I really do view these as like an interesting tool, one that I want to be grounded in sort of a rigorous and thoughtful process. Certainly not perfect. And I think that we we have a good sense at this point of the kinds of teams that we tend to you know, maybe underrate a little bit on a pretty regular basis. The Rays tend to be the the really obvious example of this, where it's like we just aren't 
necessarily dealing with their depth that they often bring with, you know, with the sort of level of certainty that people would like us to. So we tend to underrate them a little bit because they just, you know, they can, they have historically been able to weather injury really, really well because of the depth that they have in their system, right? And we're not always accounting for that perfectly here. I do think that like, it, it's worth thinking about sort of what trade-offs people are asking for and how, uh, repeatable those sort of additions or tweaks would be, right? Like you look at a team like Baltimore and maybe you say, to your point, they have the farm system to add at the deadline, right? And so they'll probably go and do that. Well, first of all, they haven't actually taken great advantage of that in the last couple of years, but let's say that they want to do that. How do you how do you model that with rigor, right? How do you incorporate mm-hmm. that? This is, you know, we've we've heard from people who say that like, organizations that are consistently really good at player development, for instance, like the Dodgers, like they should be getting credit for their young guys and how well they will be able to adapt and change once they make the majors because they have this great player dev apparatus behind them, right? Well, how do you yeah. how do you model that, right? How do you make mm-hmm. sure that you're not just doing an eh, kind of eyeball thing, right? And, mm-hmm. and like putting your thumb on the scale. Yeah. And then if someone leaves and goes to another right. team, is it like the player development director? Is it someone else? Like right. what exactly produces is it a coach? Improvement? Right. Is right. it someone sitting out in Glendale that's responsible for that? Yeah. So, is it a GM or a popo? If, if someone gets poached, do you then take away that advantage? So, right. yeah. And it's not like we're, we're projecting everyone for 80 wins or something like that, right? Like we do have, you know, Atlanta in these projections. We have the Dodgers in these projections. Houston still, you know, rates pretty well. You know, I was amazed that no one accused me of bias because the Mariners project as the second best team (laughs) in the AL West. And surely that's Meg putting her her little (laughs) thumb on the scale, right? But we should take these for what they are. They're not perfect. They're not, you know, a completely reliable crystal ball. But I think that particularly when judged over time, um, have done a pretty reasonable job of giving us a sense of who who should be, you know, good and who should maybe look to improve their roster. And I think a lot of the time when you get um, dramatic outperformance of preseason expectation, as you know, we've talked about on the pod before, as I think Ben Clements has written about, like generally that's an indication of something really cool and special happening. You know, that's not something you're necessarily going to be able to count on year to year, I think that's okay. Like, I want there to be an acceptable uh, like degree of error to these because if there weren't, it would be so boring, right? We would just mm-hmm. know what was going to happen. Why, why bother playing the games? You know, a couple of years ago, Atlanta's playoff odds were in really rough shape and people noted over, you know, the the back half of the season how dramatically they had changed, right? I think that they went from being like 5% odds of getting in to making making the postseason and having a good run and people looked at that and were like, "I can't believe that Fangraphs had it wrong." And I was like, "Ronald Acuña Jr. had just messed up his knee and then they went on like a 17 game win streak that's gonna shift your playoff odds really dramatically one way to the other and you know i don't want anyone to get hurt but i also think that like it's good for us to acknowledge that sometimes teams just 
go on a run and they do cool stuff and like their odds shift really dramatically. And rather than making it about the model not being able to predict, you know, really like far tail event, we should just revel in how cool those moments are. So Mm -hmm. I wish that that was the spirit that we brought to these and not just because it would lead to better Twitter menchies. We don't hate the Orioles. Dan's an Orioles fan, and his, you know, his projections feed half of this, so it's fine. And, you know, if they were to add a a new guy today, I bet that these would shift a little bit. Although, given that they still play in the AL East, I think that, like, if if we were to be sitting here and news broke, uh, coming across the transom, they've signed Blake Snell and Jordan Montgomery, I think people would be surprised by, like, they would move, but they might not move. They wouldn't be the Braves all of a sudden. And part of that is that they play in a freaking meat grinder of a division. So I try to talk about these, assuming, like, a lot of good faith from the people asking questions. I want to acknowledge the imperfections in the model, or at least the limitations is maybe a better way of putting it. And I do worry that uh, Baltimore fans are going to turn me into the Joker. So I'm trying to balance all of those things at once. Here I am. I'm the one that's like, we should meet all of these conversations with humility and generosity. Mm -hmm. And I do mean that. And then, Ben, sometimes people go cuckoo bananas. So it's been a it's been a little while. Well, the other results that I think might surprise people initially. So you mentioned just how positive the Atlanta projection is. That's not surprising, but it might surprise people that the Braves are above the Dodgers by a mm-hmm. significant margin because the yeah. Dodgers have dominated this offseason. They've dominated the, the discourse. They're hogging all the superstars and they have. And yet... The projections after all that, after the dust settles, say that Atlanta is still going to win like five more games than the Dodgers. And their World Series odds are like 10 percentage points higher, which is a lot when it comes to World Series odds. They're like close to twice as high, right? So that the magnitude of the difference there might sort of surprise people again because Atlanta hasn't been that active this offseason. They haven't had to be because they already locked up everyone for years and years to come. And so they were kind of tinkering on the margins mostly, which we talked about. And meanwhile, the Dodgers were going and getting Otani and Yamamoto and Glasnow and et cetera, et cetera, right? And yet, even after all that, the projections say that they had enough holes to begin with that they're still in second place looking up at Atlanta. So that's just an indication of how good the Braves are, whether you think they're actually that much better than the Dodgers or not. It's not like the Dodgers are slam dunk best team in baseball World Series favorites, even after everything they did this winter. That's one thing that stood out to me. Another, other than the Yankees ascending to the top of the AL East, maybe the Cardinals bouncing back to the top of the NL Central. They have the highest division odds and playoff odds in the Central. And that is, of course, pending any possible Cubs moves that may happen between now and opening day. But the Brewers and the Reds and the Cubs really are all sort of in a similar range, like 500-ish, a little bit above 500. And that might sort of surprise people, say in the Reds' case, right? Because they're projected for basically the same record that they had last year. And there was a sense that, oh, the Reds are on the upswing, right? Like they just promoted all these players. They're going to get better too. They've been somewhat 
active this mm-hmm. offseason, whether they went about that the best way they could have, we could dispute, but they have at least made some moves and made some additions and they'll have full seasons from their younger guys. So might sort of surprise people that the projections see the Cardinals on top after the season they had last year and the progress that some of their division rivals seem to make. Yeah, I, and I think that that's fair. I mean, I think that they did... Um well, did they address their pitching woes, Ben? Like, if we were to call they, it addressing, they addressed it. They they acquired they, pitching. They acquired <laughs> they, pitching, and yes. and in, and in bulk, right? Um, yes, which was part of the problem last year. Um, so they did that, and they play in a in a ballpark that'll be favorable to that at least. I mean, some of this is that we expect, I believe, reasonable bounce backs from some of their position players who struggled last year. So when you combine that with the pitching being at least better than it was, I think that that's, that's definitely a, a big part of it. Now, the guys who pitch for the Reds, they're not bad, but we don't love their pitching. And boy, is it hard to like, you know, pitch well in that ballpark. So that's part of it too. But again, I think it's fine to be like, that's not what I would think. And then, um, and then we get to, no, we yeah, get that's to a, see. That's a feature. But it's, yeah. I also think that it's useful to remember like how narrow the spreads are on these sorts mm-hmm. of things. Right. Cause yep. you know, the Cardinals, we pro- have a projected win, winning percentage of 520 and it's like 495 for for Cincinnati it's like you know they're four wins behind so I think mm-hmm. some of it is also just like these these things kind of can be narrow you know they can be like a, a skinny part of a, a like a peninsula like a skinny peninsula like a or like an isthmus between two mm. lakes you know skinny isthmus, like a, yes. yeah isthmus that's a hard word to say too but I, I do better with it than replicable which is impossible <laughs> yes. to say Re- reliably replicable replicable see impossible <laughs> impossible to yeah. say the only other thing that really stood out to me is the defending champions the rangers yeah yeah being this bears in some discussion third I place in yeah. the al west uh basically a 500 projection with a one in three chance to make the mm-hmm. playoffs and a one in ten a little bit better than that chance to win the al west so the yeah. astros back on top there and then yeah. the mariners meg's mariners yeah. in second place nah, after all the moves mariners. they've made this offseason yeah. So that might sort of surprise people because the the Diamondbacks, I think, you know, reigning NL champions, people understood that they were not a juggernaut. They were not a powerhouse. So they got a little fortunate, maybe. They remember their run differential last year. Do they remember? (laughs) Right. (laughs) <laughs> yes. And so people, I don't think, would be super shocked to see the Diamondbacks certainly in second below the Dodgers sure. in the NL West, followed by the Padres and then the Giants wah, wah, in fourth. But yeah. I think the Rangers being where they are might be sort of surprising, but yeah. understandable, defensible, because it certainly does seem like the Rangers who will start the season may be yes. considerably different from the Rangers who will end the season. So it really depends on how good the start the season Rangers yes. will be. Because what team, what competitive situation will they be handing their intact, hypothetical, projected second half rotation? And I think, you know, thinking about how not only the impact of sort of the first half of the season, how well they sort of weather that 
time where they're, you know, just understood to have a weaker rotation than what they hope to have both in the second half and then certainly in October. That matters. And, you know, this is a place where, and Ben wrote about um, sort of his takeaways from our odds for us at Fangraphs. And I think his point here was well taken where the sort of percentage of overall innings in the back half that that group is going to get is just going to be somewhat variable. And I don't know that the playoff odds are necessarily equipped to to account for exactly how that rotation has been constructed and how its innings are going to be distributed. So I think this is a place where I would, again, provided they are able to sort of keep their head above water uh, in the first half and given the offense that they're going to be able to field, I would have um, a good amount of confidence in their ability to do that. Y- you know, if they can be sort of a in the in the hunt come July, I imagine that um, those Rangers odds could start to change very quickly, uh, depending on the timing of the returns for their rotation guys and how sort of effective they look when they come back. So, um, yeah. everyone, it's okay. We're going to see <laughs> how it goes, but like, yes, this is a place where I think. I expect we could see outperformance and, you know, potentially dramatic outperformance there. No, this reminds me of that shocking insight I had the other day where I realized that you can never have too much pitching. That just right, dawned yeah. on me all of a sudden, yeah. that original I thought. you run and a team, Ben. Like, yeah, I'm having I mean, a, a similar insight Giving these away now. for basically free. Like, I know, <laughs> but it, it occurs to me that really that's why they play the games. Right. You know, because right. you do want to look at the playoff odds, but ultimately yeah. you, you do want them to play play the games. You want them to and play those games. That's why they play them, so that yeah. you you know what actually happens as opposed to what is projected to happen. Well, and I think that when you think about Texas in much the same way that we are perhaps um, not giving, you know, uh, like Jackson Holiday all he is due in our projections because we have to, you know, we want to see it a little bit more before he gets big, big projections. You know, the Rangers are potentially in that camp too because it would not be remotely surprising to me if we see not only Wyatt Langford some but a great deal and uh, you know like we're probably being a little light uh, on their eventual offense too because we have him projected for about two wins I think we we see some probably reasonable regression coming for Evan Carter but like Evan Carter is also very very good you know there are places where I think you can look at this stuff and very reasonably say ah like that that's the pathway for them sort of outperforming these numbers, whether it's the Rangers, the Orioles, you know, some of the the other teams we mentioned. And I think that you can create reasonable sort of downside scenarios for a lot of these clubs too. So um, that's part of why you you see a, a team like Atlanta, just the the depth and quality combination that they are able to bring to bear is part of why you're like, wow, you know, like, sure, that, that projection seems right. Cause like, mm-hmm. wow, they're, yeah. Ben, wow, Ben, wow. You know, always fun when the projections come out. It's uh, another fun. milestone that yeah. uh, tells us where we are and that the yeah. season is approaching. So we'll link to it. Go check it out. And I will endeavor to, um, you know, come up with a more tonally consistent reaction to people <laughs> on the internet. And I could tell I was spoiling for a fight yesterday. I was like, oh, gotta log off. So, a couple of transactions to mm. discuss. One, we talked about a bunch of extensions last time or mm-hmm. reunions. We went to press, we went to pod, yeah. we went to publish before the Houston extension of Jose yeah. Altuve for five wow. years, $125 million that will sure. take him through his age 39 season. Season, yeah. presumably, maybe through the end of his career. career he is a, yeah. a forever Astro, as the Astros tweet said. Yeah. 
Very bold of them. Jose Altuve, he has not lost a lot performance-wise. He Mm -hmm. is still quite an excellent player. Even here at uh, almost 34 years old, he's coming off another excellent season, at least offensively. You know, he missed some time, of course, but when he was healthy, still really ranking. And, you know, I guess there was every reason for these two to stay together, (laughs) maybe giving some other opposing fan bases feelings about Jose Altuve or any sign-stealing era Astros. Mm -hmm. And he's been very successful there. The Astros have been successful with him. Makes sense that they would want to stay together, even if uh, they are committed presumably to the downside of his career. Yes. I kind of hope, you know, I'm I'm not giving him a pass for being present on the sign-stealing teams, but I do yeah. wonder by the time this contract is over, by the time Hall of Fame eligibility rolls yeah. around at least five more years after that, how much the stigma will cling to him because it, it really is a shame that he is tarnished by this. Now, obviously, yeah. he brought that on himself to some extent, yep. but <laughs> it is a shame just because he's such a fun player, you yeah. know, and I wish there were no baggage associated with yep. him, self-inflicted or, or otherwise, because it would be great if everyone could just enjoy the wonder that is Jose Altuve. I mean, yeah. lifetime 300 plus hitter in this era of low batting averages just makes contact, hits for power, does everything fairly well, and is just a little guy, you know? And I think that endeared him to to everyone before we even knew how good he was going to be. Just a little guy. I remember... Kevin Goldstein and Jason Parks talking about him in the up and in podcast days when he was still in the minors and he was an object of fixation for them because it was like, wow, this guy, he's so small and yet he's so good. And it would be great if we could just uh, appreciate him as a player without all of the stuff that's attached to him. Not saying it shouldn't be attached to him. I think... Maybe he gets tarnished even more than he should because people think of him as the face of those teams. And also there's all the unproven buzzer and tattoo nonsense, right? All the reporting and all of the audio evidence suggests that he didn't really want the signs, that there was less banging going on when he was hitting, which is, again, not to excuse him because obviously he knew it was going on. He didn't do anything about it, right? He he was not some whistleblower or anything, so he condoned it tacitly at least but he was not really a ringleader from all appearances and if Carlos Beltran gets into the Hall of Fame yeah it seems like he probably will like he he had a pretty big bump in his second year of eligibility and he'll probably get there and he is maybe not as closely associated with the Astros because he wasn't an Astro as long right and and yet he had much more to do with the side stealing per all the reporting it was you know he was it was the brainchild of Carlos Beltran to some extent right so he really took a lead in organizing and uh, architecting all of that. So if anything, he should maybe be stained more by that than Altuve. So if he is not permanently tarnished by that, then maybe Altuve won't either. Obviously he will in, in some minds, but I just, you know, as an appreciator of his talent, I do hope that we get to a point collectively where it's not the first thing that comes to mind about him, even if it yeah. is one of the things that comes to mind. I don't know, Ben. You know, I really I, I think you're right that um, Beltran's candidacy and sort of how that ends up going will will have a lot to 
to say about it. It'll be something of an indicator, but he is he does occupy this weird position relative to Beltran, as you said, because he is so he is so important to that franchise. And I wonder if that will end up mattering a good deal more than his involvement really did, like the or the degree of his involvement. It's really too bad, you know. I think that we were robbed of something that, you know, in the as, as we're assembling sort of a hierarchy of the of the wrongs around the banging scheme um, that probably sits closer to the bottom than the top. But um, having just an uncomplicated understanding of this guy who is. You know, if you were to set that episode and stretch aside is like so easy to root for, you know, mm-hmm. he he is just a little guy, you know, he's yeah. my height and he's a great player and he was signed to sort of just be an org guy. You know, that was that was really the understanding of him was that he was just going to be there until someone better came along. And I don't think that they really appreciated um, for a little while, like what they what they really had in him. And that's an easy thing to to root for and get excited about. So, you know, I don't want to tell anyone who has a negative impression of those teams and still sort of has a grudge around it um, that they're wrong. Like I, I, they cheated and they did it for um, a while after being told not to. And it at least corresponded to a season where, where they won a championship. And I think it's fine to be mad about that. But because I didn't have that experience of it, I still think I have a soft spot for him. I don't know how advisable this extension is, but that's a who cares, <laughs> yeah. you know, like it's not my money. The defensive run saved numbers for him lately have been bleak. The yeah. OAA, the stack cast base ones, not as much. But yeah, I, I do wonder how yeah. long he will be a viable second baseman. But yeah, we'll see. But I, I also think that like maybe the real <laughs> I might be trying to do too much with this. So Strap in. I do wonder if part of the real legacy of someone like El Tuve is to demonstrate that, you know, even even very good players and players who, apart from the the cheating, seem like they are, you know, good people and good community members, like it isn't uncomplicated. And I don't say that to give them a pass, but just to like have us have to kind of sit and grapple with those legacies. It's certainly not on the same sort of scale or or degree of moral transgression as um, people who do violence to their intimate partners, for instance, but it is a, a violation of trust and uh, um, a bit of cheating. And, you know, maybe it's maybe it's good that we have to sit with that sometimes and, and sort of figure out what our relationship to those kinds of players and people are going to be in a situation where the stakes are not either as elevated as they are when these guys do harm to their loved ones or as cut and dry as those. Right. So I don't know. Maybe I'm trying to maybe I'm trying to do too much with that, Ben. But mm-hmm. I'm, I've been thinking about that lately. Like maybe it's just OK that it's complicated here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If he finishes up at 60, 70 war, if if he gets the 3,000 hits, which is within range, yeah. then maybe those things will be more salient. It's it's sure. not quite the Robinson Cano case where he was an all-time great second baseman and probably is just forever tainted by PDs. Yeah. Maybe it's, it's not something that will stick to him quite to that extent, but we will see what history yeah. decides. Other move 
Gary Sanchez is yeah. a Milwaukee brewer. Now, we've talked about uh, pitchers who've turned around their season suddenly going from one team to another. We talked a bit about Gary during 2023 because he had about as drastic a turnaround as anyone did, right? Going from at the beginning of the season, I remember when we were talking about like, should the Angels take a flyer on Gary Sanchez when Max Stassi was out? And it was like, hmm, yeah, I guess, you know, maybe it might be worth a shot, right? And then a couple teams did take chances on him. He was with the Mets briefly. He was with the Giants, not hitting in the minors briefly. And then the Padres said, we'll give Elgari a chance. And he really rewarded them. Yeah. He hit 19 home runs in 72 games, 260 plate appearances, like the Gary Sanchez home run rate of old, and also was pretty solid defensively. And so now he has parlayed that turnaround into a deal to be the Brewers' backup catcher for one year and seven-ish million. Mm -hmm. And we got an email from listener Nick who pointed out Milwaukee Brewers have been busy when it comes to catchers this Mm -hmm. offseason. they got a lot of catchers in the mix because they have William Contreras. They have Sanchez now. They had already signed Austin Nola. That was a minor league deal, I believe. They signed Eric Haas. They also have a top prospect. Jefferson Caro is a catcher. So they got a lot of options there. But it is intriguing, this fit of Sanchez and and Brewers, because as Ben Clemens documented in his post for Fangraphs, they have a great recent track record. Yes, they do. Improving catcher's defense, specifically their framing. And Sanchez, he's not a terrible framer or anything. He's really improved. Like he's always had a great arm, of course. He has become less of a bad blocker and he has become at least a competent framer. But if he can undergo that patented Brewers defensive catcher transformation and suddenly be a really plus defensive catcher and keep providing that kind of offense, then it's nice. Then you see why they would want him even in the mix of other guys they've got because when Contreras gets a day off, they want to DH him. They can slide a pretty good bet in there and maybe a pretty decent glove too. It's been just quite a career arc for Gary Sanchez, really. The minute that this um, news broke and it made its way into the Fangrass slack, Kyle Kishimoto's instant reaction was, oh God, they're going to make him a plus 15 framer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, is, it is just... Um, It's interesting both in terms of how sticky or not those improvements have been for guys as Mm -hmm. they have cycled through Milwaukee because some of them have held on to them and some of them have not. Um, So I'm I'm fascinated by that piece of it um, because, you know, the year to year variation and what seems like it would be a stable skill I find so interesting. But, yeah, they've had they've had very good and consistent luck, even if those gains aren't consistently held all the time. So mm-hmm. yeah, I'm I'm fascinated to see like what they're able to do with him. You know, it seems like a very good organizational fit and you know, useful to them even beyond the days he's able to catch. So um if he's able to hit anything like he did in San Diego and have the kind of pop that he did there, I think that that would be pretty useful for for them. So yeah, it's uh it's 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 interesting, you know? I mm-hmm. find it pretty interesting cuz like you know, he only played in 75 games last year and he hit 19 home runs. So yep. he had a he had quite a little tear there, you know, yeah. and and quite a turnaround from from just like a pretty lousy year, um, at least with the bat in uh, in Minnesota. So, yeah. So how interesting do you find the Red Sox being 
documentary series subjects. That's projected last place AL East <laughs> team, <laughs> the Boston Red Sox. They're going to be the subjects of a Netflix documentary, actually yeah. two Netflix yeah. documentaries, one of which will focus on the 2004 World Series, but one of which will follow them throughout the 2024 season. Yeah. I've seen people comp this to hard knocks. I think probably the, the better comp is to other Netflix series like Formula One, Drive to Survive, or Full yeah. Swing, the golf docs, or, or Breakpoint, the tennis doc. It's also executive produced and directed by Greg Whiteley, the guy who directed Cheer, Last Chance You, Wrestlers, all well-received series. This is that, but for baseball, which... <laughs> I'm laughing because of the em emphasis you were putting on some of these titles. Hard knocks, breaking point. Um. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what this one will be called, but yeah. it is similarly, it's just going to be a, a document of their entire season. Yeah. And it's sort of exciting, I guess, because, hey, I mean, Netflix, uh, a lot of people subscribe to that. A lot of people yeah. watch it. Could be yeah. a lot of exposure for baseball you know, I've read people attributing the rise in popularity of Formula One in the U.S. to Drive to Survive, and I was kind of under that impression myself. I, I have since read compelling explanations that it's not really that, that other things were more responsible for the uptick in popularity, which mm. seems to have sort of uh, stalled, which is not a reference to cars or racing, but <laughs> it seems like more, you know, the telecasts on ESPN and other factors, but it certainly didn't hurt that people were getting into it via Drive to Survive. And mm. now a, a baseball version of that, I'm all for promotion of baseball on a popular platform. I guess one question is how well will that model map on to baseball? And right. are the Red Sox the ideal documentary subject for sure. this? I, I, I don't know whether they were the only ones that raised their hands or yeah. that there was a choice or, or whether, yeah. well, there are a lot of Red Sox fans, whether that yeah. was a factor. Obviously, some teams may not have wanted a camera crew poking around all year, but I see the upside. It's just a question of, well, the Red Sox aren't expected to be good. They're mm -hmm. not expected to be terrible. So I guess they give you a, a good sense of here's a baseline baseball season sure. <laughs> that is not inordinately terrible or great or inherently dramatic. At least it doesn't appear to be on paper on the playoff odds page. Who knows how it will actually turn out. They don't seem to be that riveting a subject, I guess. Like if right. I had to draft teams to be the stars of this documentary, I don't think the Red Sox would be high on my list. But Did you just pick the Dodgers? I might pick the Dodgers, yeah, <laughs> but th there are a lot of teams that, uh, you know, are both better and, and maybe have, I don't know, more compelling personalities yeah. or, yeah. I mean, Tristan Cassis, maybe he'll be the, the standout, he'll be the breakout he seems, documentary star, yeah, right? Yeah, he seems <laughs> destined to be a breakout star in this. Yeah. I'm very excited for that part. Yeah. I plan to watch this. I, I don't yeah. know how well baseball will work for this. Like it could work really well because there's yeah. just so much baseball and it's so such a long season. Baseball. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. different from some of its predecessors and quarterback is another series like focusing yep. on 
an individual sport or at least a more individual sport than baseball, right? Or at least focusing right. on an individual within a team within that sport. sport yeah. yeah. They'll have to probably figure out who are the stars of this or who do we want to yep. focus on to narrow things down. So it, it might be kind of a different beast than some of the previous series that it's being comped to. Do we know when they found out that they were going to be the subject of the documentary? I don't. It was just announced this week, but right. I, I don't know. I, I do wonder if um, they would have done their off-season the same way <laughs> if they had <Yeah. laughs> known about this. But I, I saw a lot of people reacting to sort of the anticipated mediocrity of the, the Red Sox roster and being perplexed. And I, I think that that's, you know, sure, fine. But I don't think that the team has to be good for it to be interesting. In fact, yeah. some of my favorite hard knock seasons have been the ones where the team has been God awful and watching, you know, it's not um, fun in the same way necessarily. And, you know, people do have a, a sort of a more dour kind of cast to their, their interviews and whatnot, but it is still interesting and tells you something about like what it's like to weather that. And I would imagine yeah. within the context of Major League Baseball, because the season is so long, there will be sort of new insights to be gleaned uh, there from from a baseball-specific context uh, that you don't necessarily have in the same way with the NFL. So I don't think that them being bad is necessarily dispositive on the season being interesting. No. Well, they're yeah, I, I'd feel better about it if they were god-awful. <laughs> they're not even that, right? I, if it were well, a truly terrible team. Yeah, we'll see. Yeah, <laughs> like who's, who knows? The, the fact that they, they at least project to be mediocre, yeah. that is maybe less interesting than either really good or really bad. Yeah, and like that's where the the Red Sox of it all I think comes to play. Where someone at Netflix was like, "Yeah, but like it's the Red Sox. People are gonna watch mm -hmm. stuff about the Red Sox, you know? Like, mm -hmm. uh, you got to give Patriots fans something to do uh, in the <laughs> off season. So here here it is. Well, there's a new Patriots documentary in the works too. Right? Stop the, it! Is the it Dynasty really coming to oh, Apple good. TV Plus soon good. next week? <laughs> next week? Yeah. Do they? <laughs> Do the people at Apple know what kind of season the Patriots had this year? Because let me tell well, you, it was not a it was not an entry into the dynasty. I'll, I'll say no, that it's, it's called the dynasty. I assume it's not about the twenty twenty three to twenty four Patriots. Because they <laughs> but, were bent, not very yeah, good. They were. You know, in I'm fact, always up on my Apple TV Plus programming, even when yeah, it's much more so related. than the NFL. <laughs> yeah, because I I have been thinking about this in light of the attention Taylor Swift has brought to the NFL, mm. and we briefly mentioned. That mm. on our last episode, you maybe cast some some side eye vocally, but I'm gonna have to clarify it. But yes, <laughs> <Okay>. go on. <laughs> I, I have looked on that with some envy, you know, just yeah. the the way that she has uh, made football even more popular, which yeah. you wouldn't think that it could have been. I mean, it certainly says something about her singular level of celebrity and stardom mm -hmm. that her being associated with the NFL is not a boon to Taylor Swift necessarily. It's a boon no. to the NFL. And that has translated seemingly to revenue and to ratings and an increase in interest in certain demographics, right? right? And so I've seen some people saying like, well, could that happen for baseball? Like, is, is there some sort of relationship? You know, my colleague at The Ringer, Nora Princiati, just wrote about the the wags of the NFL, like the season of the wags, the wives and girlfriends yeah. who have sort of uh, dominated this season, Taylor Swift foremost among them. In baseball, 
you don't get that as much. And I've been thinking about, you know, like, is there some other star who, uh, if there were a relationship with a baseball player, would produce the same sort of increase in attention? And for one thing, I mean, there's only one Taylor Swift. So, I, you know, I don't know that anyone else could provide that sort of boost in attention. But even if there were, I wonder whether it would work the same way for baseball just because of mm. the structure of the sport. Because, again, like we always talk about, I mean, local, regional interest in baseball is extremely strong. But interest in national broadcasts and ratings, not quite so strong. Whereas people watch the NFL, like people who are not Kansas City fans are going to be tuning in to watch Kansas City play, like not just in the Super Bowl, but also in the playoffs. Like if you're a football fan, you watch right. other football teams play. If you're a baseball fan, you might not watch other baseball teams play regularly. And so would there be the same sort of exposure? I don't know that there would be, you know, like, is that star going to be at 162 games or 81 games a year? Are people going to be tuning in to sign up for that many games? That's the other thing. It's like football, you know, 17 to 18 games. I mean, you got playoffs, but it's just not a huge commitment to tune in to watch one game a week if you're not super into football, but you're like, oh, this singer, this musician I really like is dating this football player. I'm going to pay attention to this football team right. now. It'd be a different calculus in baseball. It's like, huh, yeah. I, I like this person, but I don't know that I like them enough to watch 162 games of this thing that I right. otherwise wouldn't be watching. So I'm not sure that it would produce the same sort of effect. First of all, I can't believe how rude you're being to Vanessa Hudgens right now and Cole Tucker by extension. That's the other thing, though, is that like it can't just be any player too. I mean, it would be in some ways maybe more a subject of curiosity if it were like some scrub who were dating the biggest star in the world. But the fact that that Travis Kelsey is a football superstar, I think, increases attention because like he's going to be a prominent figure. He's always going to be on the field. He's going to be getting the ball. Whereas, yeah, if it's Cole Tucker and Vanessa Hudgens, if it's yeah, I'm trying to think of comps in the past. Like, you know, there have been some celebrity couples in baseball sure. in recent years. And sometimes it's celebrity athlete couples like like right. the Swansons, right, currently. Right. Or yes. in the past, like Matt Trainer and Misty May Trainer. But it's right. like how excited are you going to be about Matt Trainer? I mean, right. <laughs> apologies to Matt Trainer. Or, you know, if I guess speaking of the Red Sox, like Nomar and Nia Ham would have been right. a, a, a good comp in the past. Or Maybe currently the best comp for that would be Paul Skeens and Livy Dunn. That yeah. might be the closest you can get with baseball yeah. right now. Right so, now, yeah. Yeah, it's it's happened. But in the past, like there have been baseball stars who have been associated with big stars in other fields. Like when baseball was kind of at the center of American culture, I think it was maybe more common where you might have Joe DiMaggio and Marilyn Monroe or you'd have uh, Ralph Kiner dating various movie stars or or more recently, like you had Matt Kemp and Rihanna. I was just going to say. Yeah. yeah. You had David Justice and Halle Berry, <laughs> you know, so like it has happened or Justin Verlander, Kate Upton would be the mm-hmm. more recent comp. But 
Kate Upton didn't have Uptonies, you know? Like, I don't know what the Swifty <laughs> comp would be like for um, for a, a model. I mean, yeah, Kate Upton was well-known, but didn't have like a hardcore stan culture kind of fan yeah. base, I don't think, who are like, we're going to rally behind Justin Verlander because Kate is dating this guy, you know? So it's a little bit. And obviously, like, Derek Jeter dated tons of celebrities in his yeah. day and is, is married to Hannah Jeter, formerly Hannah Davis, right? So, right. and sometimes I guess it's post-playing career these relationships happen. I mean, right, like Joe, like Joe DiMaggio and Marilyn Monroe. Yeah, A. Rod and J. Lo, right? Was mm-hmm. uh, that was post-playing career? If I yeah. remember the sequence, right? I think so. You it, do. Yeah, it can it can happen, but I just I don't know that you could concoct a, a couple. Like I was seeing people like, what if we put Shohei Otani with like some kind of K-pop, J-pop star, like someone mm. from Blackpink or something, you know, like, would that be Otani with some major star? Right. Maybe, maybe, maybe. maybe that would help. Yeah. Maybe that would do it. I don't know. I don't know. You're right that, like, there is a particular alchemy that is making the the Travis Kelsey Taylor Swift coupling more potent culturally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know if it'd be quite the same um, if there were another very famous person dating yeah. sort of a similarly talented within the baseball context baseball player. Yeah. We have to factor in the the Jason Kelsey as potential future in-law effect. <laughs> yeah. <also. laughs> God, I bet he'd be a lot of fun at a wedding. Um <laughs> I think it is just a a different sort of thing. I also think that like the it would have been a uh, I imagine a big pop culture story regardless. Um but also like Taylor Swift is sort of having her own moment that is yeah. um I think amplifying this pretty dramatically. Like she's in the middle of like a billion dollar yes. worldwide tour. Yeah. I'm writing about her. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and and the Chiefs are really good and famous and prominent right. too. So Yeah, and about yeah. to play in the Super Bowl. So, yeah. you know, I, I I don't know. I there is a part of me. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna lie. And I I wanna clarify, use this as an opportunity to clarify my comments from the earlier podcast. Like I I don't dislike Taylor Swift's music. I have I own Taylor Swift music. Um I am so grateful as a media member to not have to do this in our sport just Mm. because I'm exhausted by it already. And like some people are being so, so relentlessly weird about the whole, just like, you know, like Cuckoo Bananas weird about, um, about some of this stuff on, from every conceivable angle. Right. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I I don't know. Like, I just want to say again, I think it would suck to be famous. Um, I can't imagine having people care who I was dating to the degree that people care about who Taylor Swift dates. Um, although she, you know, tells people about it afterward through her Mm -hmm. music, Ben, through her music. Sounds like it'll happen again through her Mm -hmm. music. I don't know what the equivalent would be here. Maybe it would just have to involve Taylor Swift. Yeah. <laughs> well. Or a young a a young person's celebrity. And I don't mean that like I feel like Taylor Swift's primary audience is like people my age, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I'm sh- maybe there's a young person celebrity younger than I am, mm-hmm. you know. Like I'm a, like a I'm I think I'm not technically an elder millennial, but I'm like pretty close to being an elder millennial. So like there might be very young people's celebrities who are on commercials and I don't recognize who would mm-hmm. be like, you know, it would be a big big deal. Big big deal. Yeah. 
I, I don't is know. A, Could be true. Is Olivia Rodrigo single? Can we match make her with some, some young know. baseball star? It you don't doesn't know. feel like point. it's my business. <laughs> no, but. I thought that, that album was better than After Midnight, but that's just. I did just, too. I really like that album. Anyway. Yeah, Guts is great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Pro, pro Guts. Way to go. Okay. okay. Oh, boy. Man. It's just so fraught to talk about, which is weird because I don't like have like particularly strong feelings about it other than like I think we should probably leave people alone more than we do. Mm-hmm. It's like a weird. Third mm-hmm. rail yeah. kind of a thing. I will say, like I imagine that it is. Uh, I mean, like it seems undeniable based on the data that we have. Taylor Swift's presence has elevated viewership somewhat mm-hmm. for the NFL. It is. It has led to an interest, um, and you know we'll have to see how lasting that interest is. But I will also say, it has been weird how like gleeful some have been about being able to like explain football to women again mm-hmm. it feels like every some of those guys were waiting they were like uh-huh. oh good now we have a uh, we have an opportunity License to, to mansplain yeah yeah mm-hmm. i was like oh good we have this back again <laughs> i don't know i feel like i if i were gonna 2080 my um like uh, ability to express my thoughts today i don't know that it would be more than a 50 but um <laughs> i just think everyone should stop being so weird you know be less everyone i mean like be yourself but like mm-hmm. be less weird at other people maybe is what I'm hoping for. Yeah. (laughs) Last thing I wanted to mention briefly, remember Carter Stewart? Carter Stewart, who I thought of this uh, partly because uh, I was looking at the 2018 first round draftees, uh, Mm -hmm. which included Tristan Casas and also included Carter Stewart, who was the eighth overall pick. And he took an unusual route, right? Which I I think was discussed on the podcast at the time. He was drafted by Atlanta Mm -hmm. and then ultimately Scott Boris engineered an alternative route for him where he went to Japan and he signed with the Fukuoka SoftBank Hawks. And at the time it was speculated that this might start a trend. Kylie McDaniel wrote about this for Fangraphs at the time and Mm -hmm. talked about uh, uh, will we see more players do this, more amateurs? Because you could maybe get more money this way. You could get to the major leagues in Japan more quickly than you could get to major leagues in the U.S. He, he got $7 million over the f- first six years, and, yeah. and he could qualify for MLB free agency at age 25, right? And so this was looked on as a, a trailblazing move. And I was reading an article Jim Allen wrote about him just recently for Kyoto News, which I will link to. But he's now starting his sixth season in mm-hmm. Japan. And it's been kind of a up and down, twisty yeah. and turny long road for him. So yeah. it, it hasn't proved to be, oh, this is your get rich quick and get to the majors right. quick scheme that everyone else will be following. He yeah. has, to this point, only pitched like 100 innings or so yeah. in the majors in Japan. He has uh, pitched more in the minors over there. He's been good. He's been not so good. Obviously, like the pandemic was part of this and that sort of set him back. But he talked about it, too, just like he had a lot to learn. And, you know, you can't just throw someone in the deep end and say, go do it. Like he had to figure out how to pitch. And then there was like the language barrier and the cultural assimilation and just getting used to all of that at a young age. Like it's hard enough to go pro if you're in your native country. And so if you're going overseas and you're acclimating to all of that, then it's an additional challenge, right? So 
he talked about that. He's had some success. Like he is uh, now looked at as kind of a, a core part of the Hawks rotation, I believe. And who knows, maybe he could come back to the U.S. at some point and we might see yeah. him in MLB. But it has not been totally smooth sailing and it has not always been the easiest adjustment. And he spoke sort of frankly about that. Just interesting in retrospect because it's been several years now. And I remember yeah. this being talked about possibly on this podcast at the time about like, yeah. oh, maybe this is something that a lot of people will do. And uh, that hasn't really happened. And maybe it's understandable that it hasn't happened. It's such a hard thing to know how people are going to adjust to being professionals, being in, you know, a foreign country, being sort of on your back foot in terms of language. And then you throw the pandemic in. Like, I, I'd like to see another chance of, like, proof of concept here because I do think that having multiple avenues available to players in terms of how they manage their own development and their own careers and sort of get to pick where they work at a at a earlier juncture uh, mm -hmm. is appealing to me. But yeah, it hasn't been like a runaway success where you you have like college guys who are going to be like, oh, I'm just going to do what Carter did and it'll right. work out great for me. But, you yeah. know, like you said, we also don't know. The, the, the tale is not yet told, Ben. Nope. You know, mm -hmm. the rest yeah. is still unwritten like that yes. song. Yes. And Boris is always looking for some end around, some loophole. Yeah. And found it because, as I mentioned, the Braves drafted him, but then there was a wrist injury. And so they right. offered him a, a below slot signing bonus. And right. they said, nope, we'll just uh, go pro in Japan instead. Yeah. So that's an update on Carter Stewart. We have a guest to get to. So we as we've been recording or a little bit before we've been recording, Rob Manfred has been given a press conference and he's been saying some stuff. He said some stuff about how as soon as 2025, there might be a direct-to-consumer in-market streaming package that might include half the teams in MLB so that you could sign up not just to stream out of market on MLB TV, but also for some in-market package. But all of that's still hypothetical. What is also hypothetical that Rob Manford was talking about is the Las Vegas A's. <laughs> so he made some comments to the effect of they really should try to pin down where they're going to be playing beyond mm -hmm. 2024 in the next few months and uh, that it would be disappointing if they aren't in their new Vegas home by opening day 2028. And that seems very up in the air these days, frankly, because we've covered some of the sources of uncertainty. There's a Nevada teachers group that is suing to block the state from spending taxpayer money to build a baseball stadium mm -hmm. for the Las Vegas A's. There were some highly amusing comments by the mayor of Las Vegas yeah. on a front office sports podcast who was basically like, I think they should maybe stay in Oakland. Like, maybe that would be better for them. And then she sort of walked that back after the podcast came out, but not all the way back, like walked it partly back to yeah. say like, you know, if they don't work things out in Oakland, like uh, Las Vegas could be a home for them, but still like sort of was like, uh, maybe Oakland's the best place for them to be. So all that stuff is going on. Meanwhile, the A's are offering a buy one, get one free plan for opening day 2024, which tells you how <laughs> dire things have gotten because even terrible teams typically have no trouble attracting yeah. fans and selling tickets for opening day. And the fact that they are resorting to buy one, get one free for opening day, that tells you how far things have sunk. 
they drew yeah. almost 27,000 to opening day last year. I don't think that's going to happen again, even with this buy one, get one free, maybe. So that whole effort is uh, seemingly in shambles. It's not clear where they're going to play in the interim. It's not clear where they're going to play in Las Vegas if that does actually happen. No renderings, no plans, nothing has been forthcoming. However, there are some plans for professional baseball in Oakland this season and beyond, and it is not Major League Baseball, but it is still professional baseball. It is Pioneer League Baseball, and it's the Oakland Ballers. So if you do not get plan A's, you get plan B's. You get the Ballers, potentially. And so we are going to take a quick break, and we will be back to talk to the co-founder and CEO of the Ballers, as well as another new California expansion team in the Pioneer League, the Yolo High Wheelers, about their plans and how they expect the Ballers to be a big part of baseball in Oakland post-A's. Oakland is ready for a new baseball team. Oakland needs a new baseball team. We're going to have baseball here. We're not going to let anyone else dictate of what we can and can't have here in Oakland. So what they trying to steal from us, we still have bad. Baseball in Oakland, baby. 2024, the Battle of the Bay, the real battle, the Battle of Oakland. If they want to leave, hey, it's the end of an era. But anytime something ends, something begins. All right, we are joined now by Paul Friedman, the co-founder and CEO of the Pioneer League expansion team, the Oakland Ballers. He is also the co-founder of the Pioneer League's second California expansion team, the YOLO High Wheelers. Paul, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. So for those who have not followed your journey from starting zero baseball teams to starting two, <laughs> can you <laughs> tell people how that, how that happened? Because it has happened fairly quickly. Yeah. So 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 my background isn't sports. I've, I've been a fan my whole life. It's just a huge, huge fan. But my baseball career ended when the ball started to curve. Um, <laughs> but I've been a fan my whole life um, and lived in Oakland for the last 30 years. Um, and, you know, have fell in love with, with baseball the, for the reasons why young people do, because of the excitement and the ability to watch your heroes and to be able to see what Ricky could do on the field, like just love the game like we all do. Um, but as an adult got more reflective about why we put so much emphasis on sports in our society and came to the conclusion that there's a magic of sports in its way to bring diverse communities together. In Oakland, nothing has brought our community together more than the A's. The city colors and the A's colors are the same. And so, you know, when it looked like the A's move was official, um, like most sports fans, Brian and I were heartbroken. That's your your co-founder, Brian Carmel, right? My, my, yeah, my yeah. co-founder, Brian mm -hmm. Carmel, who I've you know known since high school. You know, he and I, like most A's fans, were just gutted. Um, it was, you know, it's really tough when a team that's so much a part of your personal identity is going to leave the, the, the city that you're in. Uh, but my background has been a builder. I've done startups before. And so while I don't know about uh, how to build a baseball team, I know how to build organizations. And Brian and I thought, look, we can probably do something about this problem maybe. And maybe if we got the rest of the Oakland community behind us, we can build something that could be we could be proud of. And so that was really in June. And since then, we've been working tirelessly, really tirelessly, <laughs> uh, to put this all together. Um, and as you, you said, you know, the goal was to bring a baseball team in Oakland to make sure that the rich and beautiful tradition of baseball in Oakland continues. But it turns out in order to launch one baseball team in a league that has 10 teams, 
uh, you need to launch two. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> um, so we ended up with twice as much work, and we also launched the Yolo High Wheelers and are excited to bring Arrival um, to uh, the city of Davis in the county of, of Yolo. And what has the community response to the bees been thus far? How have you sort of positioned it, not just as something that is answering the departure of the A's, but as perhaps the start of a new tradition? Yeah, I mean, we've been incredibly overwhelmed by the response from the community. Uh, we wouldn't have done this if we didn't think it was going to hit a vibe, but the level of uh, fan response, the level of excitement, the level of support is just incredibly overwhelming. Within hours of our launch, we had a fan club in Spain with over a thousand members. It's just been incredibly off the charts. Like we couldn't for a while keep our uh, hats on the shelves <laughs> uh, because they were being bought so so quickly. Um, the local uh, Sports Illustrated writer said the weekend that Atani's contract came out, the number one read article on his site in Oakland was about the ballers. I mean, the response has been incredibly overwhelming. And I think that's because, you know, we were right about what we, we thought was here. This is the best fan base for baseball in the country. This is a fan base that, notwithstanding, you know, recent attendance numbers, actually loves this game, is passionate about the game, is passionate about community. Together, I think we can build or, uh, and continue the rich tradition of, of baseball that is Oakland. For those who are not familiar with the Pioneer League and its long history, can you sum that up? What the Pioneer League used to be, what it is today, who is actually playing in the Pioneer League currently? Uh, yeah, the, so the Pioneer League is an, a very established league. It's established in 1939. For a while, it was an affiliated league. In 2019, uh, it was de-affiliated and became a MLB partner league, but no longer the team individually affiliated. Uh, there are 10 teams mostly playing in the Mountain West, Colorado, uh, Utah, Montana. We're going to be the first two teams, but not the last two teams in, in California. And it's sort of positioned itself as an innovation league. And that's really why we were so excited to join it. So uh, it does rules innovation in partnership with MLB. One example of that is instead of extra innings and in regular season games, it has a knockout round, which is kind of like a home run derby to side ties. So fun, family friendly, engaging, and was a perfect league for us to join for what we were trying to accomplish. So tell me a little bit about getting up to speed and the learning curve here. It is not the same thing, but it reminds me a little bit of when I ran the baseball operations for a Pacific Association team in Sonoma back in 2015 with my partner, Sam Miller, as we were writing a book about it called The Only Rules It Has to Work. And we thought we were prepared and we were not at all prepared. <laughs> we were way over our heads and we weren't founding the team and we weren't owning the team. We were just trying to procure the players and help plan the in-game strategy, et cetera. So what you're trying to do in a short time frame is a heavier lift than that. So what are the difficulties you've run into? What have you had to learn just going from baseball fan to baseball owner? It's all hard. We should have probably talked before and you could have talked me out of it. Um, uh, <laughs> I mean, one of the things that's been great, though, is that we've been able to, to find partnership with folks who know a lot more about all of this than, than, than we do. So, you know, that started uh, with Wak. Don Wakamatsu um, got connected through a mutual friend. Don Wakamatsu, for those who don't know, you know, long history in, in baseball, 17 years as a player, 18 as a manager. He was the first Asian American manager in the history of MLB. Uh, has two World Series rings, like, you know, a very well-respected guy. And and we got connected through a mutual friend. And he was he's from Hayward, which is a, a suburb of Oakland. And he was just so into what we were doing that he wanted to be 
part of it. And he became our VP of baseball operations. He started putting uh, the coaching and management team together. And we have put together what I think is an MLB quality coaching roster, you know, most recently, including JT Snow. On the business operations side, we brought in Daryl Washington, who used to work for the A's, used to work for the Warriors, um, most recently was running the Bay Area Panthers, which is an upstart football team. And so we've just, fortunately, because of people's excitement about the project, have been able to bring people who are way smarter than we are <laughs> um, to kind of help out in the other areas of the business that hasn't made it easy. Um, we're working constantly and, you know, every day we face challenges, but so far we've been able to partner with folks that have made it easier for us. You have a an MLB caliber um, management team on the playing side, but I wonder about the players themselves and how you're thinking about the process of assembling a roster and how you're talking about what that roster might look like, what Pioneer League rosters in general look like to the folks who are going to be watching them. Because for all the the jokes that people might make about the state of the A's roster, like the the talent pool you have access to, I imagine, is pretty different than it would be uh, in affiliated ball. Certainly true, although, you know, for folks that don't know about the changes in the minor league system, you know, it used to be that there's 60 rounds of, of drafts. Um, now there's only 20 rounds. So literally two thirds of the players that used to be on affiliated rosters are now uh, independent uh, and they end up in, you know, teams like ours. Um, and so, the, you know, and there's famous players. And Piazza was a 59th round draft pick. There's a whole, there's a whole litany of Hall of Fame players who were drafted yeah. after the 20th round. And so we have access to, to all of them now. They're all free agents. And so they get to decide what league that they play in. And we kind of have to convince them that, you know, Oakland or YOLO is the right home for them. That was part of the reason we wanted to invest in an MLB talented manager team uh, so that they can think that their development was going to be in safe hands. And we continue to do that. So for you and Brian and any other investors involved, do you see this as mostly a money-making opportunity, a for-profit business? Is it more of a civic duty and responsibility? I mean, how do you see your motivations as it pertains to making money as opposed to giving people a place in Oakland to experience professional baseball? Yeah, the answer to that question is yes. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I spent a whole, my whole career on what I consider impact businesses. Like I it's a core value, the concept that you can do well by doing good. Um, you know, all the, my previous businesses were in, you know, human capital and education. And so I don't find those two questions irreconcilable. I actually think the answer is both. Like, we believe that this is going to be a great thing for the Oakland community. We think we're reawakening the love for baseball and we can use that love to do good things for the, for the city of Oakland, for the city of Davis. Um, we firmly believe that. And, you know, we're investing our own money in this. Um, we're becoming fiduciaries for other people's money because we think it's going to be a good economic return. I, I think we firmly believe the answer is both. So the response from the community has been really strong and positive. I'm curious for our listeners who perhaps have not followed your stadium saga, what the response from the A's has been to your uh, announced intent to bring new professional baseball to the Bay. Well, we've had no official statement from the A's. Um, you know, the, the only interaction uh, that we've, you know, had is, you know, around our intent to uh, lease the Coliseum. So for folks that haven't been following it, one of the th things that we first did was uh, find an off day that, that the A's were away and work with the, the folks who do booking at the Coliseum to see if we can book up game there. Initially, that was approved. We got a signed contract. We paid our deposit. We actually started, you know, calling the, the local little leagues and the softball leagues to, you know, to give tickets away to folks who, because of the you know pricing of MLB games, don't necessarily get to see a, a game in a place like the Coliseum. And we were really excited about it. 
you know, the intent there was to be a celebration of, of baseball, you know, in Oakland for for Oakland fans, the Coliseum is, you know, our, I don't know, church, our temple. It's like, we love that place, <laughs> um, even with the possums. And it was really important for us that we have an opportunity to celebrate that baseball will continue in Oakland in the place that we love to watch uh, baseball. And then unfortunately that was, you know, blocked by the Oakland A's who have a um, exclusivity on professional baseball. And so that's really the only interaction that we've had with the A's. And I guess one challenge is you reference some challenges, one that maybe you have in common with the A's is figuring out a place to play. So I know that the YOLO club is slated to play on UC Davis's campus. You've had plans for where the ballers would play that, as I understand it, are still somewhat up in the air. So can you give an update on where you expect opening day for the ballers to be? Uh, yeah. So the opening day for the ballers will be in Oakland. That's that's, uh, you know, that's 100 percent. That's a fact. We had initially been looking to play at a junior college um, in Oakland called Laney, um, which is, you know, uh, the heart of downtown Oakland. It actually has a history with both the A's and a history with incubating um, minor league teams. It's There's a Oakland-based USL soccer team called the Oakland Roots that played their initial games in, in Laney College. But then the city of Oakland came to us with a very exciting you know, counter proposal, which there's a park in, in Oakland called Ramondi Park. Um, Ramondi Park is named after Ernie Ramondi, who was a baseball player who lost his life in World War II. It's where Frank Robinson grew up playing. It's where Kurt Flood grew up playing. There was an article in the Oakland Tribune once written about Ramondi that said, it's a little known secret that more baseball professional baseball players have gotten their start at at Ramani Park than any other place. And the city of Oakland came to us with the concept that instead of incubating at Laney, we consider playing our first games at Ramondi, and that's now where we're headed. And what upgrades, if any, do you have to make to that? What uh, capacity are, are you hoping to have? Substantial updates. So we are working with the city of Oakland on uh, uh, what they call a gift in place, which is, you know, we're making a, a private investment to a public facility, and that'll be well over, you know, a million dollars just to get the, the playing service, um, you know, up to pro standards and to have, you know, padding on the wall and outfield and a, and a warning track and all the things that you need in professional environments. The current capacity we're looking at for, for year one is 5,000 uh, seats. You mentioned the roots, and a lot of people have pointed to the roots as a model, a proof of concept for how well things could work for the ballers. So for those not familiar, again, this is a professional men's soccer team in the USL Championship League that has done really well in the area, has sometimes outdrawn the A's, in fact. So can you talk a little bit about the roots? Have you been in conversation with them? Have you learned from their example? We've been in conversation with them from, since before the public announcement, and they've been phenomenal. For folks that don't know, the Roots are, are fantastic, and they were started several years ago, uh, and they have a mission and a vision about sports uh, that's very consistent with ours, and that, you know, sports is about bringing communities together. And the games are a vibe. You know, there's drummers and flags. It's all of the great things about Oakland sports. Um, and then for us, you know, they've been kind of like our Oakland sports older sibling. They've been really generous with information and relationships and help and support, and, and really, you know, they had to do a lot of learnings on their own and they've helped us. We're incredibly, you know, grateful to them. 
Can you talk a little bit about what it's like as your your A's fan self, you and Brian, to see this extremely messy divorce that is still ongoing here, to see the A's uh, still seemingly fumbling this in so many ways, the ongoing uncertainty? I, I wonder what that's like as a fan, but then I also wonder what it's like now as someone who's personally invested in professional baseball in Oakland. You know, what if this all fell apart? What if John Fisher did sell the team and skulked away with his tail and a couple billion dollars between his legs? Would that now be bad for you if the A's were in the area? So I I wonder if there are some conflicting emotions there. So the first overwhelming feeling anytime you talk about the A's leaving is heartbreak. It's it's heartbreaking. It's still heartbreaking. And we're never said that we think that we are going to, you know, kind of replace the iconic uh, A's, we mourn what was lost. You know, what we're about is or saying that the future of baseball in Oakland continues. It's Oaklanders who get to decide whether that, continue, that continues. That's our mission. As fans first, I think the first reaction to if if the A's decided to stay for, for whatever reason would be to be happy. I, I think there's plenty of places where you can see major league teams and non-major league teams existing and thriving in the same market. There's a bunch of teams outside Chicago, for example. Um, these are big markets and big big communities. And so um, I don't think that, that that would be a bad thing. We're for more baseball. <laughs> and more baseball is just better. As you're sort of embarking on a new venture, I imagine that you know, you, you're in a position to think very carefully about how this is priced, the accessibility of it to the community. Can you talk a little bit about how you've thought through balancing those concerns with, you've said, and I think it's fine to say that you do want this to be sort of a, a profitable venture, but have you, you know, how are you thinking about sort of reconciling those things with one another? Yeah, great, great question. And we do really think about this. It's not cheap to run a team. It's not cheap to run a team with the level of fan experience that we hope to have with the uh, managerial staff that we already talked about, um, with the quality of players that we hope to bring to bear. You know, there are costs. And so we have to charge for them. And, you know, we want baseball to be as accessible as possible. And so, you know, we have worked with fan groups, you know, the Oakland 68s and the last dive bar have been wonderful fans. We've sort of talked to them about what they think about pricing. In fact, we, when we were, even when we were going to do that, the Coliseum game, we worked with them kind of going through the seat map saying kind of what do we think is fair value. One of the things that we continue to work with the fans on is what we're calling the Ballers Bill of Rights, which is essentially a contract between a fan base and a team for how these kind of issues should be uh, worked out and, and communicated and what things fans want to be able to you know, have a say in and what things they can kind of trust a, a team to do without their out their control. We we hope to have that in place before we have our first game because it's for us the fans are the thing. At the end of the day, it is the fan experience. It is the being part of that joy and that celebration of the sport in the outfield, like in the in the stands. That's what it's all about. And so, engagement with the fans and having them be part of the ride is you know something that we've been doing from the very beginning. And the fans understand that this has to be a business as well. And so, it's it hasn't been a hard dialogue to have. You know, we talked a little bit about the pool of players that you have access to, right? All of these guys who unfortunately don't have opportunities in affiliated ball because of contraction on the minor league side. But how are you going about identifying those players? Is there a ballers cross checker combing the backfield somewhere? Yep. I mean, we got, we got a great team headed by walk. And then um, we got Micah Franklin, who's hitting coach, the stars, who's our manager and uh, Ray King was a you know 
former major league pitcher. I mean, we've got a great. Yeah, I was excited to see Ray King pitching yeah. coach. I, lo- I loved Ray King. <laughs> He's, everybody loves Ray King. He's great. Yeah. And then we got Aaron Miles, and then we got JT Snow. I mean, really, like I'm a fan. It's yeah. hard not to fan out. It happens a lot in my day where I'm starting to interact with people who used to be my hero, and my like high school self is like freaking out. But yeah, a lot of relationships can find us uh, players, and then we're you know looking at a lot of game tape and looking at a lot of you know uh, data packs and measuring velo and spin rotation and all the stuff that I barely understand. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's actually fun because we have meetings where, uh, you know, Walk and, and the team kind of lead us through how they're constructing the, the roster. And Brian and I try to ask smart questions, um, but mostly we're just having so much fun. And how complete is that roster? We hope to bring a little over 30 players to um, our spring training. Um, right now we have um, in the mid-20s signed Pioneer League rosters are either 26 or 27, depending on whether you take a player out of their draft. Um, so we're we're well on our way. I think we're looking at you know putting together the final pieces before we go to spring training. I got excited when you mentioned Aaron Miles because uh, he was the player manager for the Pittsburgh Diamonds back in the Pacific Association, Stompers rival. So I remember him playing there. Speaking of rivalries, so you mentioned that you had to start the second team to have sort of a natural rival. I guess this is semantics, but maybe it's tough to have a rivalry when both teams are owned by the same people initially. This was uh, an issue early in the history of Major League Baseball. And then they said, "Eh, you can't actually own multiple teams in the same league. So what's your long-term plan? Is this just to get this off the ground and then you're hoping to hand it off at some point? Or would you like to continue operating the two? We believe that you know teams uh, should be owned by by members of the communities that they play in, and that teams and communities, if anything, need to be more tightly coupled and you know perpetually coupled. Like that's our that's our worldview. We feel great pride and responsibility in being a, a, the steward of of bringing a team to Davis and Yolo County. You know, for folks who don't know the area, there's a huge baseball tradition there. Phil Swimley is an iconic uh, college coach who coached at UC Davis for years and years and years. Uh, the field named after Phil Swimley was literally built by hands over 10 years by folks in Davis. It's like an incredible story. Um, We feel honored to be the steward of that story. Um, We love Davis, but we're not from Davis. And so what we're going to be doing is bringing in people who are from Davis throughout the whole you know, value chain of the of, of the team, you know, players, managers, owners. And hopefully we want to hand off, you know, full management and stewardship of the of the team uh, to people who claim Davis. Um, in the meantime, we want both teams to be the best team and we want them to play each other in the championship and we want to bring championship baseball back to Northern California. So what I've read, you really had to overcome some skepticism from community leaders and people involved in the sell the team movement and that you were able to win over many of them who have become advocates for the ballers now, but they'd just been burned by the whole A's experience by John Fisher. What did it take for you and your partners to overcome that initial skepticism? To call them up and talk to them and tell them who we are and where we come from and what we believe in. We were nervous about the calls. <laughs> you know, I've, I've mentioned I've like talked to a number of my like heroes growing up, but the person I was most nervous to call directly is a guy named Jorge Leon, uh, who's the head of the Oakland 68s and grew up in East Oakland and is a fan. And I was most nervous to call because I knew that his support and the support of people like him was the most important thing for our project. And about 
15 minutes into the conversation, you know, I think we became fast, fast friends. Um, you know, we then put together before we announced the team to the, to the media or to anybody else, we put together, what we call the secret meeting, which was a, you know, 30, 40 of kind of the pillars of the Oakland baseball community, the heads of the various little leagues, the other fan groups, um, some elected officials and a small number of, of journalists. And we just talked about what our plans were. And then we just also shared stories of the way that baseball and sports, you know, changed our lives and brought the community together. And then I think we walked out of that meeting with great energy and a lot of enlisted support. And then we have needed that support every step of the way. Like this is not Brian and I, this is Brian and I helping shepherd the whole community of Oakland uh, to build something that we can be proud of. And how have the other Pioneer League owners reacted to your entry into the league? They were excited to do it initially. Um, and we actually, to be honest, had an opportunity to be in kind of all of the unaffiliated leagues. Uh, we chose the Pioneer League. We chose the Pioneer League because of its position as innovation baseball, because of the cool relationship it has with um, MLB, because of some of the other um, you know teams that are, that are out there. So we were excited to join. And we had to go through a whole application process. I mean, joining you know any league is sort of similar. You know, they have to vet the credibility of the ownership group. We you know, went through multiple rounds of, of vetting and ultimately the other owners uh, decided that we were kind of worthy of, of being part of, of a league that started in 1939 and has you know a wonderful tradition. And so I think so far they've been excited. Um, I think they were surprised like we were about the level of, of response. You know, usually when you announce a Pioneer League baseball team, it's not the number one story on ESPN for the day that you announce it. Um, and so I think they've been excited and encouraged by, by the response. And I think it's, you know, hopefully they recognize it's really good for the league, right? I think there's an opportunity to elevate uh, this league to be the innovation league. Um, and I think there's a role for that in the whole baseball ecosystem. What sort of fan experience do you have in mind just at the ballpark? Because, of course, you know, some people might be more reluctant to go to a game that is not in the majors or is not affiliated. You're not necessarily going to see tomorrow's future major league stars, though you never know, you might. But if you are going to get people to come out, it's going to be in part, at least for the community, right? I mean, yes, you can, of course, try to win and you can do innovative things that might be difficult if you're an affiliated team and you're beholden to the player development edicts of the parent club. But also maybe you've got to make it fun over and above just the hope that baseball is inherently fun. But are you looking to some sort of Savannah Bananas, Bill Vecchian promotion style here? Or have you looked around to see how can we sort of differentiate the fan experience at, at Ballers games? Definitely looking for a differentiation. Um, uh, but I'll start with the, the first part of the question. You know, the players are really good in, in, in this mm -hmm. league. The quality of play is, is really strong. You know, pitchers throw over 90, the ball goes out of the, the field. I think you're gonna, you know, gonna be surprised if you witness the quality of the, of the players and the, and the quality of the play. Um, uh, and we wanna win, you know, our games can actually matter. I think one of the challenges in, you know, affiliated baseball is it's all about player development. You don't have the, the full control of how you play players relative to trying to win in the schedule. And so it's important to us um, that we, you know, are in a position that if we're going for the title, we can play whoever we want to play and 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 make sure that, that we can win. And the whole point of all of this is to have fun as communities. And so the fan experience and fan engagement is really important to us. We've watched the Savannah Bananas, and I think anybody, you know, in baseball should. What they've been able to accomplish is incredible. They're getting young people to drag their parents to go see, a, you know, a game with baseball game dynamics. And I think 
everybody who's involved in baseball at every level should be watching them for inspiration. You know, our model is kind of, we see the the Savannah Bananas kind of like the Harlem Globetrotters. Uh, and the Harlem Globetrotters, you know, existed in basketball way before basketball got to the level of popularity it is today. And it still exists. And there will be a role, you know, role for the Savannah Bananas forever. But it wasn't the ha- Harlem Globetrotters that created the game of basketball to be as popular it is today. In our opinion, it was the Showtime Lakers. And what they did is they brought a little of that Harlem Globetrotter vibe to the real game. And then they wrapped it in a celebratory and and party atmosphere with t-shirt cannons and and dancers and all sorts of things that weren't there before. And, you know, I think uh, I love baseball, but I worry that some of the fun of it has been coached out of the game. And you don't see players playing with a smile on their face and you see players at bat, you know, thinking about all of the analytics they've been told in their head. And, and it's, you know, when you got that much data in your head, it's really hard to play with a smile on your face. And so the number one thing that we want to do is make sure that our players have fun, uh, that our fans have fun. You know, the vibe will be fan friendly and fun and hell of Oakland. Like the, the Oakland gives is a wonderful muse. (laughs) It's a wonderful culture and we have a lot of fun stuff to play with. Yeah. So you mentioned the publicity that you've gotten, which is maybe not normal for someone starting up a Pioneer League team. We wouldn't necessarily be interviewing the owner of every Pioneer League team on Effectively Wild, for instance. But of course, just the way things have happened in Oakland with all of the teams leaving and the way that the A's have left, there's just so much bitterness, enmity toward the A's, toward John Fisher for how he and they have handled this that I think has helped you certainly in generating support and attention and maybe a bit of wounded local pride, right? Like, hey, we want to show that we still care about baseball. We still have a baseball team in Oakland, et cetera, right? So I wonder how long you think that sort of surge of interest and support that is stemming directly from wanting to basically, you know, thumb your nose at John Fisher and say, hey, we can have baseball without you. We don't need you. Whether that emotion will last or whether you hope to kind of capitalize on that initially and then build this into a a sustainable project that is not really related to people's lingering feelings about the A's. It won't last. But, you know, right now, the Oakland fan base wants to prove that it loves baseball and it's a great fan base. So right now, there's some some pride in that. And that's probably definitely benefiting the attention that, that we're getting. You know, right now, they want to prove it. We think they will prove it. <laughs> and if we can have a, you know, Pioneer League team that is setting attendance records for pi- the Pioneer League that's filling capacity all the time, that's showing that the Oakland fan base will bring the drums and bring the flags and will cheer and uh, celebrate, you know, our team, uh, then I think we will have proved what the haters say about Oakland to be wrong. And we'll prove what we have always known, that this is the greatest fan base in the country. And this is a fan base that loves and celebrates baseball. And this is a fan base that wants baseball to continue in Oakland and wants to be able to decide that it continues. All right. So for any of our listeners who are in the Bay Area and are interested in the ballers and or the high wheelers, how can they support your efforts? How can they follow your efforts? And for non-Bay Area residents, if they are interested as well, how can they keep up on what you're doing? Well, the Oakland website is oaklandballers.com and the High Wheelers is highwheelers.com. You can go there. Uh, you can follow us on social uh, with both teams. Um, season tickets are about to go on sale You know, pr- pretty shortly. We'd love to have you at games. 
we're going to do our best to make you proud. You know, one of the things that we want to do also is, you know, have a two-way relationship, not a one-way relationship with fans. And so we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you think we're doing right, where you think we can improve. You know, we won't be able to address, you know, every comment or every concern. There's only so much we can do and only so much time, but we will promise to listen. May 21st opening day. Is that right? May 21st is opening day. June 4th is the, the first game in Oakland. All right. Well, we've been talking to Paul Friedman of the Oakland Ballers and the YOLO High Wheelers. Good luck with everything, Paul. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. All right. That will do it for today. By the way, we talked about playoff contenders in our segment on the playoff odds. The Rockies have the worst win projection and the lowest playoff odds, but they're not zero. They're 0.1%. So Fangraphs is saying there's a chance. Also, as my colleague Zach Cram pointed out, the Angels are projected for 77 wins, which is as many as or more than they've had in each of the past three seasons with Pete Otani on their team. I'm going to take the under on that, but it would be something if they lost Otani and didn't miss a beat. The A's, for what it's worth, projected for 71 wins, which would be a 21-win improvement. It's a more optimistic projection than the White Sox or the Nationals got, or the Rockies, of course. We'll get back to pre- reviewing next time. Red Sox and Padres up next. For now, you can support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectively wild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some monthly or yearly amount to help keep the podcast going, help us stay ad-free, and get themselves access to some perks. Ryan Brock, Ryan Killian, Will Shea, Joshua Cunningham, and yet another Ryan, Ryan Top. Thanks to all the Ryans and all of the Patreon supporters not named Ryan. Patreon perks include access to the Effectively Wild Discord group for patrons only monthly bonus episodes, playoff live streams, prioritized email answers, discounts on merch and ad-free fangrass memberships and potential podcast appearances and so much more. Check out all the offerings at patreon.com slash effectively wild. If you are a patron, you can message us through the Patreon site. If not, you can still contact us via email, send your questions or comments to podcast at fangrass.com. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash effectively wild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. You can follow Effectively Wild on Twitter at EWPod, and you can find the Effectively Wild subreddit at r slash Effectively Wild. Thanks to Shane McKeon for his editing and production assistance. We'll be back with our next preview pod before the end of the week, which means we'll talk to you soon. The wacky hypotheticals are perfectively styled, and the stat blast queries are detectively compiled. Non-Agerian baseball legends selectively dialed, but their spiciest takes are still respectfully mild. More than 2,000 episodes retrospectively filed, and at each new one we still collectively smile that's effectively wild. That's effectively wild.